God, we ask that you would help our hearts to release treasure that is less than Jesus. And may he become to us all the riches and wisdom and power and glory that is in you. May we look to Jesus and find our soul's eternal satisfaction. May our appetites for other things be curbed and seen in light of the goodness and glory of the Savior. Show him to us through your word today, God, and through the gospel. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. Well, I, I second the nomination and welcome you to Crossroads uh, and express gratitude not only for your presence, but for the presence of air conditioning in this place. As you know, I am a Norwegian New Mexican, so I don't do well anything over about 98 degrees. So uh, it's official that I could actually melt before you today, and you'll have to take me out of here with a straw or something. So uh, this is, it's good to be with you. It's good to look at this passage one more time. Uh, we, We left a piece of it undiscovered. And it really is the meat of this most famous passage that we call the rich young ruler. So will you look with me in Mark chapter 10? And today we're going to focus on verses 23 through 31. And we're, we're on the second half of Mark's gospel. So we're nearing the, the cross here. And the speed at which Jesus moves towards Jerusalem is about to increase. But the lessons about what it means to follow him are, are here. So... Let's begin by reading the text, Mark 10, verse 23 through 31. And Jesus, looking around, said to his disciples, how hard it will be for those who are wealthy to enter the kingdom of God. The disciples were amazed at his words. But Jesus answered again and said to them, children, How hard it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. They were even more astonished and said to him, Then who can be saved? Looking at them, Jesus said, With people, it is impossible, but not with God, for all things are possible with God. Peter began to say to him, behold, we have left everything and followed you. Jesus said, truly, I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers, or sisters, or mother, or father, or children, or farms, for my sake and for the gospel's sake, but that he will receive a hundred times as much now in the present age, houses, and brothers, and sisters, and mothers, and children, and farms, along with persecutions, and in the age to come, eternal life but many who are first will be last and the last first this is the very word of the living god it's my privilege to speak to you today on discipleship wealth and the impossibility of salvation those are the three things that i know need to be expressed to you in this passage that raises so many questions in the mind of a, of a young listener. Discipleship, wealth, and the impossibility of salvation. Let's begin with discipleship. The context of, of what we just read is that famous story we considered last week of the ideal evangelistic convert, the rich young ruler. The composite of this man that makes him those three characteristics is one that all three gospel writers uh, contained and captured in their uh, effort to explain what Jesus' earthly life and ministry was all about. All three of them 
thought the inclusion of this story was well worth your attention. And so they all tell it in in similar detail, emphasizing different aspects of who this man was, all of them presenting him as an eager, potential follower of Jesus. Mark, in particular, is showing us this man in light of all the confusion the disciples have been in in who Jesus is because they'll make some progress. You are the Christ, the Son of the living God in in Mark chapter 8 in the words of, of Peter. And then moments later, Peter receives a rebuke from Jesus after his right affirmation of Jesus' deity. And Jesus says Peter doesn't understand the plan because the plan involves self-denial and cross-bearing in the following of Jesus. So as Mark has intentionally tried to help us understand what does it mean to follow Jesus? What does it look like for anyone who would go after the Lord, who would walk with Him, who would copy Him, who would go where He goes? And, And he's made that crystal clear to us that it involves self-denial. It involves a willingness and a, uh, an awareness that this will cost you everything, that you will lose your life. And in losing your life, you will gain your life for the sake of Jesus and the sake of the gospel. That your life is actually valuable in its eternal nature. That saving your life involves losing your earthly life setting aside your agenda, your plans, your will, and following Jesus until your earthly life draws to a close. And upon that horizon of your earthly life, your soul will carry on. And the weight and worth of the human soul is spoken of by Jesus when he says, what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? What will a man give in exchange for his soul. And Jesus' disciples are walking with him and they're learning and they're struggling with trying to figure out what exactly is their own destiny and how does it tie in with the destiny of their Lord, their teacher, as they walk with him and he continues to get in trouble with the religious leaders. He continues to call a band of of ragtag misfits to be his disciples. No one with great significance in society. And those who did have some significance, like Matthew, who was a tax collector, was only significant because he was somewhat wealthy and he left everything behind. Hated by the Jews, uh, kind of a traitor to the Romans. He was the disciple who maybe had the most significance in society, but he was also one of the most despised. The rest of them are mostly fishermen or there because their brother is there. This is not a group of scholars. There are no Pharisees that have joined them, no religious leaders, no Jews of, of significance and renown. And so these 12 are kind of clamoring to figure out who's going to be the most important of this little group. And Jesus just keeps swatting it down and saying, if you want to be great, you have to be the servant of all. And he's changing their paradigm of what it means to be a leader, what it means to be a disciple, what it means to live for what really matters. His insistence on death and suffering and the cross and a coming resurrection is to their minds and and hearts such an alien understanding of what it would mean to follow Messiah. A military conqueror is who he should be in their minds. The one who will put God's chosen people at the forefront of history and who will defeat all the nations. The consummation of God's plan for all the age to come, the the coronation of God's king, the stability and sustenance and thriving of God's people. That's what they think they're going to be a part of. But what they're starting to understand is that Jesus' redundant insistence on death, death on the cross, on a, a way of living that ends with dying in sacrifice is actually the entirety of the message. That the resurrection that follows cannot come apart from the cross. The victory that's, that's looked at on the horizon of this whole thing is something that requires death and submission to the will of God. That will become their message. They will become preachers of the cross. 
Preachers who will give their lives up to die. Who will insist that Jesus is the Son of God and that in his dying he purchased men for God from every tribe and tongue and nation. By dying on that cross he made a way for all of our sins to be forgiven. For us to walk with Jesus in newness of life. This is how he's changing their understanding of what it means to be a disciple of Jesus. And so when this significant man comes to Jesus, verse 17, and runs up to him and kneels before him and asks him, good teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? The disciples had to be going, best evangelistic encounter ever. Pick him up. Trade James and John and future prospects. He's worth it. I mean, this guy's got it all. He's got the leadership. He's got the ears of the nation. He, he's, he's got potential because his whole life is in front of him. He, he's blessed of God in obvious ways. Not only that, he's, he's a moral man. <clears throat> he understands the commandments. He abides by them from his youth on. But Jesus turns this whole encounter in an unexpected direction for any evangelist when he tells him, actually, there's only one thing you need to do to inherit eternal life. Go and sell all you possess and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. And it's those words that the disciples get hung up on. It's those words that a modern audience gets hung up on. Why in the world would Jesus say that In order to have eternal life, you must sell all your possessions. The word there, possessions, is real estate. It's it's wealth that's invested. He owned property, land, buildings, industry. This guy was a big deal. And Jesus told him, you've got to part with that. Go, sell all you possess and give to the poor. All those words in the aorist tense. Just do it. Get it done. It's over. Now, there's a promise, though, that follows. Don't skip over it. It says, and you will have treasure in heaven. He wants this man to divest himself of all his earthly wealth in order to gain heavenly treasure, something unseen, something promised, something to come, something imperishable. But then Jesus gives him in the strongest possible language this call, follow me. You see, for this man, it was necessary for him to divest himself. But the way he was getting eternal life wasn't by selling stuff he had, by going from rich to poor. The way he got eternal life was by following Jesus. That's how eternal life comes. That's what discipleship is. Discipleship is following Jesus. You see, the hindrance to this man's discipleship was his great wealth. And that's why the encounter encounter turns the way it did. At these words, verse 22, he was saddened and he went away grieving for he was one who owned much property. The emotions and the expressions of this passage are so memorable. In verse 21, when Jesus looks at him and feels a love for him, we're reminded of just the the human emotion and pathos of the Savior, that he cares for sinners. And when this man is crestfallen, In verse 22, saddened, his face falls, and he goes away in deep grief. That's a remarkable statement in and of itself. That's the only time in the entire New Testament that someone walks away from Jesus sad. In all the Gospels, that's the only time. People go to Jesus sick, and they leave him well. People go to Jesus sorrowful, and they leave him joyful. People go to Jesus broken and hurt and lost and they're found and healed and delivered. 
That's how people encounter Jesus. But in this case, this most unique case, this unusual case, this one man in all the Gospels comes to Jesus and walks away crestfallen, sad, grieving because he was unwilling to follow Jesus because he owned much property. And I said last time that I I get it. Like you probably don't own much property. You're in college, you're a young person, and even if you're, you're in here, you're probably not a, like a, a real estate baron. I didn't see Mark Cuban in here last week. So I don't think you, you got the juice in that way. You, you just, you know, you have what you have. It's probably not much. Maybe you can sell it when you're old to pay for the nursing care. Leave your kids with, you know, a... a a used Prius or whatever. And so I'm concerned, last week's concern was that you would see this, you know, and maybe even fall into the ethos of our present age of your professors that say, you know, hashtag eat the rich. This is, oh, this doesn't have to do with me. This is those, you know, this is the rich people who are, you know, seen as the problem in society today. That's that's the trouble. It's the rich people. This percentage has all the wealth. That's the problem. But you're missing the point, just like the rich young ruler missed the point. Following Jesus is what matters. In his particular case, the unwillingness to follow Jesus came from his commitment to his stuff. And Jesus, in his great omniscience, he knows this man's heart and he knows your heart perfectly. He knows exactly what enslaves you. He knows exactly what holds you back. He knows exactly what you're unwilling to trade. And so he calls you to follow him in the same exact manner. For you, maybe it does include divestment of property and things that are far too valuable to you. Or maybe it's leaving behind an illicit relationship that you know does not honor God. Or maybe it's leaving behind some sort of sin that you've coddled since the earliest days of your life. Or maybe it's leaving behind some bitterness and malice and anger that has driven you to become who you are. Who whatever it is, whatever sin that you hang on to so closely, understand this. You cannot be Jesus' disciple unless you're willing to follow him no matter what the cost. And so that brings us to our text that says something to us about the nature of discipleship. And I love that it begins with the words in Jesus looking around. Jesus is looking around. That's a phrase Mark loves to use. Jesus looked around. Parablepsithai. It's a key word. Six times Mark uses it. He uses that word immediately all the time, but this one is is punctuated throughout the gospel. And I actually really love it. And I I don't think this is a this is negligible. Look at Mark 3 5. After looking around at them with anger. Grieved at their hardness of heart, he said to the man, stretch out your hand. And he stretched it out and his hand was restored. What's he doing there? He's in the synagogue. He's healing a man with a withered hand. He's getting rebuked for doing it in the process. And he's upset with the religious people who are trying to stop him from helping a guy. And he looks around at them with anger grieved at their hardness of heart. In verse 34 of the same chapter, his family members are clamoring to see him. They're trying to kind of pull him out of trouble because Jesus is is drawing so much trouble and attention to himself. And so they're going to come kind of confiscate him. And and so his mom and his brothers come and they're going to talk some sense into Jesus. And Jesus says in verse 34, looking at those who were sitting around him. That's his disciples. This crowd is pressing around him, but he's got his disciples right there at his feet. And his mom and his brothers are trying to haul him off to the loony bin or whatever. And he looks at those disciples and he says, behold, look, my mother 
and my brothers. For whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. Jesus wasn't neglecting his own family. He was redefining what it means to be associated with him. Because for Mary, for James, for the other brothers of Jesus, potentially sisters, for all the the family of Jesus, you know what was required of them? The same thing that was required of the rich young ruler. The same thing Jesus called every disciple to follow me. And then you're part of his family, then you're part of his kingdom. And then you're going to inherit the eternal life that he promises. Look at chapter 5, verse 32. Jesus is pressing through this crowd and he's about to be interrupted two times, first by a synagogue official, but by this woman who's been bleeding for years. And the doctors have ripped her off and she's very sick. And she has such faith she's going to grab on to Jesus' garment because she's so positive that just even touching his robe would heal her. She believes in who Jesus is. And so it says in 32, after she touches him, he says, who touched me? He looked around to see the woman who had done this. And here's Jesus' searching gaze once again, looking at the people all around him, assessing the situation, his eyes of anger in the first passage, of judgment and, and discernment in the second passage, of, of a searching gaze to minister to this woman in that third example. And then our passage, Jesus looks in verse 23 of chapter 10, all around at his disciples. He's about to ask them that key question. And then again in chapter 11, verse 11, Jesus entered Jerusalem and came into the temple. And after looking around at everything, he left for Bethany with the twelve since it was already late. In that passage, what's he looking at? He's looking at the Hosanna shouters. He's looking at the crowd of celebrants who are proclaiming that He is the Messiah and He's searching them with His eyes. Oh, how the gaze of Jesus reminds us that there's nothing that our Lord does not see. And when it comes to following Him, He knows what kind of stuff you're made of. He knows what's holding you back. He knows what's weighing you down. He knows your history. He knows the stuff you've never told anybody. And when the omniscient gaze of Jesus, when his eyes land on you and he says, follow me, or he clarifies what it means to be a disciple, or he rebukes the hard-hearted religious person, it's those same eyes that search now and define what it means to be a disciple. Jesus looking around. Two times he's going to tell them that it's difficult, yea, impossible for the wealthy to enter the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven. He uses those phrases synonymously. Kingdom of God several times. Kingdom of heaven once. What's going on there? Well, Jesus is showing his disciples that he defines what it means to follow him. And the disciples are just dumbstruck they couldn't handle the encounter they just saw it didn't make sense to them and so if discipleship is following jesus no matter what the cost i think it's important we talk about wealth because this is a passage that's all about wealth yes it's about discipleship and wealth was that one thing that this man could not leave behind but it was something that the disciples didn't understand they didn't have a theology of wealth that matched what jesus was saying and doing and so having talked about discipleship let's talk a moment about wealth money cash dinero cheddar bread whatever you call it maybe it folds in your pocket maybe it jingles as coins maybe it only exists electronically 
But how do you think about money? More specifically, how do you think about lots of money? Because that's what wealth is. And contrary to the socialist age in which we're entering, wealth is not a sin. God doesn't hate wealth. The abundance of money or possessions is something that to be understood biblically could consist of storehouses of actual money, investments, property, whatever it is, it's wealth. And it is not in and of itself evil or sinful. It is a misinterpretation of 1 Timothy 6 to say money is the root of all kinds of evil. It's not just a misinterpretation, it's just bad reading. 1 Timothy 6 doesn't say that. 1 Timothy 6.10 does not say money is the root of all evil. The Bible doesn't say money is the root of all evil. What does it say? The love of money is the root of all evil. And so I'm asking you, how do you feel about lots of money? Does it pull on you? Because wealth in the Bible is not sinful in and of itself. It's not offensive to God because God is rich. Man, I've never felt so TBN as when I yelled, God is rich just now. But He is. Like in the Bible, God is super rich. He owns the cattle on a thousand hills. Like He's not impressed with whatever you have because He has what you have. Because He has you and the planet and the galaxies and everything. He's perfect in His own existence and all things belong to Him. God is super rich. He's wealthy. And wealth doesn't offend Him. In fact, Wealth in the Bible is seen as something that God will give at times to His servants. Men of vast wealth like Job were blameless men who feared God and obeyed Him. Their money was not a hindrance to their discipleship. Their wealth was not an obstacle to their relationship with God. Abraham left behind wealth and procured wealth as he followed God throughout the Levant and became this massive patriarch of extraordinary means. He was basically a nation state. He had an army. He was bigger than Bolivia. Abraham was a big deal. I don't know why I picked Bolivia. It was the first army I thought of. Jacob, one of the most wealthiest men in the Bible. And often... The Bible looks at wealth as a blessing of God. Never as proof of your right standing with God. But if you have money, it's because God has allowed you to have money. And having money doesn't make you right. Psalm 73. The psalmist Asaph is crying out that why do the wicked prosper? Because sometimes the worst people have money. And sometimes the best people are poor. And sometimes the best people have money. And sometimes the best people are poor. And so it's not an automatic correlation of righteousness. We see this in the New Testament as well because there are rich people that are instrumental in the church. Matthew, who cashed it all in. In Luke 8, a lady named Joanna who is rich. Joseph of Arimathea was rich in Matthew 27. Zacchaeus was a rich man. Lydia, who hosted the early church, was rich. The people who hosted some of the New Testament churches in Romans 16 and other passages would be considered quite wealthy in their their culture. And so it's not like a New Testament thing. Like in the Old Testament, you could be a baller like Abraham, but in the New Testament, you have to be, you know, uh, Mother Teresa. Who is a syncretist? How many filthy lepers have you washed today? So, what you do with what you have and how you view accumulating what you have begins to help us understand why money isn't the root of all kinds of evil, but the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. Money's not the problem. Money's going to do what money does. Money, when well-managed, is going to increase. Money is going to benefit and bless the people that have it. 
We learn this in Ecclesiastes. If you want a whole sermon on how much money can help you, uh, you can get that one. It's called Mo Money, Mo Problems. I made that up, that title. The temptation of money, though, is to overvalue it, to think wrong about it, to change your theology to get more money. Because Deuteronomy, from the very beginning, in the Torah, warns God's people, you say in your heart, my power and might of mine has gotten me this wealth. That's a theological problem. What you have, whether it's a little or a lot, is a gift from God. That has to be the starting point. And when you puff out your chest and say, it's because I'm such an investment strategist guru, you're in dangerous theological thin ice. Deuteronomy 8 goes on to say, you remember the Lord your God, for it's He that gives you power to get wealth. He establishes His covenant, which He swore unto your fathers as it is to this day. Money's going to do what money does. What are you going to do with money? And what are you going to let money do to you? That's the question. The disciples are so jaw-droppingly astonished when Jesus says it's impossible for a wealthy person to enter the kingdom of God. And that is absolutely true. And in their amazement, Jesus speaks to them as little kids in verse 24 and says, children, how hard it is to enter the kingdom of God. And so he shows that it is particularly difficult for the wealthy, but it's also impossible for all. So whatever it is that holds you back from following Jesus, it is to the level that Jesus assesses your entrance into the kingdom of God, your participation in his world, in his coming, in his righteous kingdom, into heaven as a disciple. All of those things under Jesus' assessment, whether you're rich or poor, are difficult, hard, Your money could hold you back and 10,000 other things because it's hard to follow Jesus. It's hard for sinners to follow Jesus. And because of their kind of prosperity thinking, their retributive theology, when they see a blind guy, they say, who sinned, him or his parents? That's bad theology, not biblical theology. The disciples had that all fouled up. So did lots of Jewish people, Job's friends, same, same kind of thinking. And so when they see this, you know, Mr. Rich, young, powerful, and they think perfect disciple, they're not thinking in a Jesus kind of a way. God doesn't need your help. He doesn't need your money. He's not served with human hands as if he needed anything, Acts 17. And so Jesus is trying to show them that it doesn't work the way he, they think it works. They don't understand discipleship rightly and they don't understand wealth rightly. And so in 25, he says, maybe the funniest thing Jesus ever said besides the sons of thunder thing. I think it's funny. People don't think Jesus is funny because he's Jesus and you're not allowed to be funny if you're holy. But, because it says that in the Bible somewhere. But Jesus is funny here because he says it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. How many of you have heard that there's a gate in Jerusalem called the eye of a needle? How many of you have heard that before? Lots of, lots of people think that. I found people online talking about it. Good times. Uh, a British newspaper, people in, in, in England still like write to the newspaper. It's really cute. Since camels, were, since camels were heavily loaded with goods and riders, they would need to be unloaded in order to pass through. Therefore, the analogy is that a rich man would have to similarly unload his material possessions in order to enter heaven. Rick from Brighton, UK. 
Well, I was told that the point about the narrowness of the gate meant the camel had to be unloaded to pass through it. Thus, a rich man would need to free himself of his possessions in, inter, in order to enter paradise. Chris from Bristol. The eye of the needle used to be in Damascus and was a side gate alongside the main gate, a street called Straight. Being a side gate, it was not intended for passage by animals, especially camels carrying side loads. So it was nigh impossible for the act to happen. Jack Hill, St. Albans, England. Well, I have heard it was likely a mis-editing of the Greek. It seems like the original was likely camelos, meaning not, which became mistaken for camelos, meaning camel. I don't know in an eye of the needle gate in Jerusalem. Steve from... I don't know how to say that word. So, the commentators all say there's no such gate. Archaeologists, scholars, no gate. Now there's gates there called that because there's people who want to make money going like, hey, you want to see the gate? Come with me, tourist, I show you gate. <laughs> Why? They're Russians. They're everywhere. They're in Jerusalem. <laughs> they're here. You'll always find a Russian willing to show you stuff. So, <laughs> You like salvage car? I help you. So... Maybe around a thousand years later, there was a gate called the Needle Gate. But this isn't the word, the Needle Gate. All three gospel writers say the eye of a needle. And they all use a different word for eye, needle, or they all use the same word for camel. So if it was an actual gate with an actual name, they would call it by its name. It's not called that. Also, if you go to the Aramaic, which that was not what the guy in the comments on the Guardian were doing, this is camelon, which is the Aramaic word for camel. The word for rope, not not, is camelon. And so they've tried to say, well, it's not actually a camel, it's, it's a rope. Okay, I have a needle, a rope, and a camel. Go ahead and shove either one through. What do you call that? I mean, put the rope through and then put the camel through. Or camel first, then rope. Either way, you're going to need a microscope and like some grinders or something. You're going to have to get sausage going with the camel and you're going to have to unravel that rope if you're going to get it through. Because it's impossible. That's Jesus' point. It's impossible. Plus, you don't go to the Aramaic to figure out what the Greek is saying. That's not how this works. People have tried to come up with some theory that lets the wealthy off the hook or lets uh, this mean that it's difficult but not impossible are just not listening to what Jesus is saying. They're misunderstanding the nature of discipleship, the nature of wealth and the danger of wealth, and the impossibility of salvation. Their astonishment is because if a man who is fastidious and law-keeping and apparently blessed of God and reverential towards Jesus and wanting eternal life cannot come after Jesus, then who could? Who could be saved, they say? If rich people can't go in, if it's impossible to enter the kingdom of God, who can be saved, Jesus? What's the standard? Because camels can't fit through the eye of a needle. Ropes can't fit through the eye of a needle. And none of us can fit through the gate of heaven. Not one of us can go in. We're not fit for it. We're not suited for it. We're not right for it. It's impossible. And that's what Jesus says in verse 27. The impossibility of salvation is key here. Looking at them, Jesus said, with people, it is impossible. But not with God. For with God, all things are possible. Hear the words of the Lord. Money will do what money does. It will corrupt some people and it will make very little impact on other people. 
Some rich people will be buried with the love of money and some will hold their possessions very loosely. Some poor people will spend all their days longing to be and hating rich people, covetously longing for money, thinking it would solve all their problems and buying every scratcher they can. And some poor people are perfectly content without having anything. None of them can go to heaven because salvation is impossible. The impossibility of salvation is Jesus's point. Yes, your riches could change your heart to have them set on your heart, Psalm 62. Riches could be so blinding to you that you could actually think, Luke 12, 15, your life consists of an abundance of possession, but it doesn't. The rich fool is shown to be foolish because he trusts in his riches in Luke 12. You cannot serve the Lord your God with all your heart and soul and mind and strength if you love money, Mark 12, 30. Proverbs repeatedly warns you of how wealth could fool you into not depending on God. But Jesus is here saying, rich or poor, whether you long for millions or not, you cannot get into heaven. It's impossible. You don't have what it takes. You don't stand a chance. The righteousness of God is a barrier to salvation for sinners. Yes, wealth is a potential danger to faith. It's not categorically condemned by Jesus For this man, wealth was an actual danger because it prevented him from doing the one thing necessary for salvation, which is following Jesus. The point is this, anything that causes disciples to forget their childlike poverty, to commit their, to to forget their bankruptcy, their lack, their lowliness, Anything that keeps you from following Jesus just highlights that a camel can't go through the eye of a needle and a sinner cannot be saved. It is impossible for a person to save themselves, to clean themselves, to change themselves, to move themselves to a place that's acceptable before a holy God. None of us in our own strength and adequacy could follow Jesus. We would be distracted. We would be pulled away. We would be lusting after other things. The only hope we have is if God makes it possible. And that's exactly what Jesus Jesus says, with man it is impossible, but with God all things are possible. How do you find eternal life? How do you enter into heaven? How do you follow Jesus as a disciple? If it's not about your wealth and it's not about your ability to make yourself acceptable to him, the only way you get to him is through God. And God has said the only way to get to him is through Jesus And so leaving behind all that entices you and all that holds you back and all that will beguile you and simply following Jesus is the example of these disciples who are before him that Jesus just looked at with his eyes. that The young man who just walked away sad, Jesus loved him because Jesus knows that the problem is the heart of man. And Jesus is the only one who can solve that problem. You see, the impossibility of salvation is absolutely true if it were not for God. And the fact that we just heard the the narrator say Jesus felt a love for this man and showed him the way to be saved, gave him the opportunity of the gospel. That love, J.C. Ryle says, beyond doubt, was a love of pity and compassion. Our our Lord beheld with pity the strange mixture of earnestness and ignorance which the case before him presented. He saw with compassion a soul struggling with all the weaknesses and infirmity entailed by the fall, the conscience ill at ease and sensible that it wanted relief, the understanding sunk in darkness and blinded as to the first principles of spiritual religion. Just as we look with sorrow at some noble ruin, roofless and shattered and unfit for man's use, 
yet showing many a mark of the skill with which it was designed and reared at first. So we may suppose that Jesus looked with tender concern at this man's soul. There's the eyes of Jesus searching, and he sees what you once were. He sees what you could gloriously be if you would see that salvation is impossible apart from God's intervention. Rao continues, we must never forget that Jesus feels love and compassion for the souls of the ungodly. Without controversy, he feels a peculiar love for those who hear his voice and follow him. They are his sheep given to him by the Father, watched with a special care. They are his bride joined to him in an everlasting covenant and dear to him as part of himself. But the heart of Jesus is a wide heart. He has an abundance of pity and compassion and tender concern even for those who are following sin in the world. He who wept over unbelieving Jerusalem is still the same. He would still gather into his bosom the ignorant and self-righteous, the faithless and impenitent, if they are only willing to be gathered. We may boldly tell the chief of sinners that Christ loves him. Salvation is ready for the worst of men if they will only come to Christ. If men are lost, it is not because Jesus does not love them it is, and is not ready to save. His own solemn words unravel the mystery. Men love darkness rather than light. It will not come unto me that you may have life. The great love of money is only one of the 10,000 temptations that could keep you from following Jesus as his disciple. And the glory of the impossibility of salvation is before us, telling us that you can be saved. Leave behind your sin. It's worth it. Maybe my favorite C.S. Lewis book is The Great Divorce. It describes a bus ride between heaven and hell, and the bus is on schedule. It just goes right back and forth between heaven and hell. It is not a real, theologically accurate account. It's a fiction. Stop being mad at C.S. Lewis all the time. Sheesh. The bus just keeps going back and forth. People queue up. That's what they call it in England. Queue up. They line up. They get on the bus out of gray, horrible hell, and they take the bus up to heaven, and they spend the day checking the place out and at the end of the day they all get back on the bus because they don't like it there it's too real it's too holy it's too brilliant it's too sharp it hurts them to be there and they get back on the bus and go down except in a few cases again not theologically accurate but imagination get some One person who got on the bus ride from hell goes up to heaven. And he has this lizard on his shoulder. And this lizard represents this man's sin and lust. And it whispers in his ear. And an angel approaches this man. And tells him, I'll kill that for you. And then you'll be, you'll be here. And you can stay here. And you'll be transformed. And the little nasty lizard is whispering in this guy's ear. Reminding him of all the lustful pleasure he's known all his life. As he's protected this sin. And he's coddled this sin. And he's hid this sin. And he refuses to let that angel touch it. He says, it'll hurt me. And the angel says, yeah, it'll hurt. But it's worth it. And after more kind of conversation and persuasion, the man agrees. And in the instant, the, the angel squishes that lizard and kills it. And it drops down to the ground. 
And this man just starts to transform. And the lizard, I think, becomes a horse, like a big old stallion, like a handsome, cool, black beauty kind of horse. And the dude is now no longer enchained and is back and forth bust to hell, but he's suited for heavenly places. I wonder what is being whispered in your ear. I wonder if some of you have tasted enough sin and foolishness and had enough of a fill of it that you're actually sick of it and you're ready to let God kill that. What is it that keeps you from following Jesus? Maybe it's the love of money. Maybe it's lust. Maybe it's mind-numbing entertainment. Whatever it is, what's holding you back from following Him? It might be that you don't understand the reward. And that's where Jesus goes next. So we'll look at verse 28 next time. Father, thank You for the free offer of the gospel to all who come to Jesus. Keep us on guard from the love of money, a snare to poor and rich. And keep us aware of anything that could ruin our soul. Give us contentment with what we have. Give us an awareness of our bankruptcy and and lack and need. That we don't have what it takes to be saved, to be granted entrance into your kingdom. But Jesus, you paid everything for us. And when we step to follow you, walking away from sin and, and self, we gain what we cannot lose. So Father, stir in hearts even today. Those who are with us, who've been running from you, who've been far off from you, will you grant them repentance and faith to believe your promise? that you are worth following and that self-denial is the way to life. What does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? What will a man give in exchange for his soul? God, do that work that only you can do in hearts right now. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.